You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, David. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Doing well. Good. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of Non-Zero Newsletters, the Non-Zero Podcast. You're David Yaden. Uh, you got a brand new book coming out. I think today, as we tape this, probably a few days before this actually posts, called The Varieties of Spiritual Experience, 21st Century Research and Perspectives. You're holding it up. Holding it up. This is, yeah, it's, it's book launch day. This is my first, very first book interview. So this is... Oh my this God. Is well, that's a lot. Right that puts here. a lot of pressure on me. It does. It really does. Uh, I'll, I'll try. And you actually read it. Uh, yes, I have. I have the PDF version. I don't have the physical version. Um, so you are, and, and this is uh, co-authored with Andrew Newberg, uh, published by Oxford University Press. You are a professor at the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research. Um, right. And by the end of this conversation, we will get into psychedelics, I think, although that's not primarily what the book is about. Uh, Johns Hopkins, it seems to me, is over the last 20 years has kind of become the place for research into psychedelics. It really was at the tip of the spear when psychedelics started to become kind of publicly respectable. Is that, am I right about that? That's right. Yeah. I mean, there's a number of sites that have been doing psychedelic research over the years. You know, Zurich, for example, Volenbiter have been doing LSD research, but Roland Griffiths is the person who really kicked off clinical research and research on normal healthy controls uh, at Johns Hopkins. I think he started around the year 2000. He mm -hmm. pub published a big 2006 paper, uh, which changed my whole career directory trajectory, mm. uh, that, that paper. Did it? Uh, in, in what way? Uh, I remember presenting it. Uh, in, while I was an undergrad and someone in, in the audience, another student raised their hand and said, I can't believe this is legal, first of all. <laughs> and I was specifically mentioning the finding, which continues to blow my mind. I think it's one of the most important findings in all of psychology in the past two decades, which is that two thirds of the sample uh, reported that the experience was one of the most meaningful experiences in their entire lives. Two thirds of people who had taken what LSD or mushrooms or psilocybin. something. Psilocybin, psilocybin, mushrooms. Yeah, mushrooms. Although it's synthesized psilocybin, but basically you could think yeah. of it as that magic mushrooms. Uh huh. Huh. Um, so that was really mind blowing at the time. I think it should still be mind blowing and and is. Um, but that just struck me as as the real deal. I mean, this is a, a controlled laboratory setting where this kind of extraordinary experience could be. Uh, occasioned or curated, mm -hmm. and then since then that that finding's been replicated a number of times. Huh. So um, let's let's talk about your book and and get back to psychedelics eventually. The title very intentionally echoes the title of William James's I think 1902 or so book. The Varieties of Religious Experience. He, of course, is, a, uh, I think, you know, one of the most important figures in American intellectual history, psychologist, philosopher. As you note in the book, he's not nearly as well known as, say, Freud or Jung, although, for my money, uh, smarter. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
Well, no, let's just say. Uh, well, that's exactly I, I guess, it. Uh, yeah, I know. Look, I mean, smart is a funny word, but I would say he had more actual enduring insights into human psychology and in a and more balanced judgment in a way, right? He didn't just go off on his own little little hobby horse and convince the world that it was genius stuff. I mean, he surveyed things broadly. And in this book, you know, he surveyed the whole realm of religious experience. He, he, he uh, for one thing, drew on the literature and looked at kinds of religious experiences people had reported. But he also, uh, ahead of his time, he took, well, apparently, according to your book, he took uh, mescaline and it had no effect, we think. But he also took uh, nitrous oxide and it had profound effects. And he, and he wrote about that um, in the book. But uh, so, so talk about the relationship of your book to his book. Yeah, so <clears throat> the varieties of religious experience, absolute classic, uh, extraordinarily important to me uh, personally. I, again, I, I had a spontaneous spiritual experience uh, that was uh, positively transformative, but also very confusing. And the varieties of religious experience was the book that luckily I found because it convinced me that I wasn't going crazy and that these experiences are actually um fairly common um and so i uh, know i just i'm sorry i have to interrupt you and ask you to elaborate on your religious experience i can't well <laughs> can't resist yeah yeah but i do, do want to get back to james we, oh we uh, absolutely I will just want to make the point, we have a lot yeah. of time okay yeah it, it was a yeah so there is that personal connection um yeah so my experience occurred spontaneously uh happened I've told the story a bunch of times, um, so I, I don't want it to sound like a rote <laughs> repetition. Um, but it, it happened spontaneously. It, I was lying in my dorm room bed, nothing special. There was no psychoactive substances involved. It was a time in my life I was trying to figure myself out. Um, things weren't clear about who I was, what I was doing with my life. Um, and there there was kind of this, uh, the only thing I could describe as a kind of relaxation into the moment and this idea of, well, whatever will happen, will happen, you know, come what may. I don't, I don't know if I'm making that up, if, or, you know, kind of narrativizing, uh, but that, that was the context. But basically, at that point, um, a heat started in my chest, which felt initially like heartburn or indigestion, that that heat spread eventually over my entire body. At some point, uh, a voice in my mind uh, said, this is love, at which point I became unaware of my body, went into my mind, went out of my body. It's difficult to, to parse those statements. But I saw 360 degrees, boundless horizon, and that feeling of love, which I felt it to be at that point, just increased to the boiling point. Uh, probably only lasted a few minutes. Love felt. for everything in the world. Love for just people. The essence of the feeling itself, very physical um, distillation of that of that feeling. Mm. It, it probably would have been directed omnidirectionally, uh, but that that wasn't even part of it. It was sort of this more basic brute feeling. Mm. Mm. Um, like this is the thing that can be applied to everything. 
kind of can be applied to other people. That may be so, but that would have come in the, in the after word of making sense of it. Yeah. Uh, so I open my eyes, my body is laughing and crying at the same time. You know, um, I'm things feel good. Things feel new, uh, extreme hope and optimism, but overwhelmingly the sense, what the fuck just happened to me? I mean, that that question overrode all of that. Do you know how long it lasted? I don't know. Uh, Probably only a few minutes. Mm -hmm. It felt felt like hours or, or longer, you know, time sort of slipped away. Uh, but mm-hmm. I had no reference points for this. You know, I, I I didn't know. I thought it felt vaguely religious. It felt like it must be something religious just because that was the only somewhat close reference point I had at all. You Were you brought up religiously? I was, yeah. Mm-hmm. A Presbyterian. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it, yeah, it felt like it made sense. I wasn't, I wasn't religious at that point, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it made sense within that framework. You know, that was the closest thing on hand. Um, but of course, that was never an experience like that wasn't spoken about. Uh, in, in, okay. in So I think a way to get back to James from there is for me to read uh, a passage from his book that you quote in your book that is very famous. Mm. Uh, here it is. Our normal waking consciousness, rational consciousness, as we call it, is but one special type of consciousness. Whilst all about it, parted from it by the flimsiest of screens, there lie potential forms of consciousness entirely different. We may go through life without suspecting their existence, but apply the requisite stimulus, and at a touch, they are there in all their completeness. Definite types of mentality, which probably somewhere have their field of application and adaptation. No account of the universe in its totality can be final which leaves these other forms of consciousness quite disregarded. How to regard them is the question. I mean, what a great writer too, you know? I mean, it's like that last line, how to regard them is the question. Anyway, so... Uh, and that's the question of our book. I mean, in a nutshell, right, right. that's the point of our entire What's book. What's the answer? How do we regard them? <laughs> you have to read the book for that. Okay. I am really surprised you read the book. One time you you said uh, you'd never read anything when we <laughs> when we had our... We had our regular talks for a while, and you said, don't send me anything to read ever. This is the only time you've actually read something, which I really appreciate. Well, uh, I, I have a, a, a deep interest in the subject. Uh, also, I do uh, I, I do do diligence for my podcast. I try to. Yeah, yeah, uh, I yeah. mean, we should we should say maybe we, we've known each other for a while. I, I think it must have been about eight years ago I met you at this conference uh, on the actual grounds of uh, Canterbury Cathedral in England, and uh, you were introduced as somebody who's working on this uh, project to do some kind of version of Varieties of Religious Experience. I thought, well, good luck, but you actually got it done. Congratulations. So go ahead and uh, talk some more about what the relationship this book has to James's book. Right. Are you picking up the torch, kind of, or do you see yourself as doing what he would have done if he had lived and continued the, the thing, or what? Well, in a way, yes. I think one thing we we don't want to be presuming that we're doing here is is providing a new version of William James's varieties. Actually, quite the contrary. We're trying to get people to go back and read James's varieties um, because that's, as you say, the writing is brilliant. 
you know, he's, he's was considered then and is now one of the best writers of, of the English language, I think. I mean, I think this book is really in the canon. It's a classic. Mm-hmm. So we want people to go back and read William James's varieties. I think that's number one. Number two is James was very insistent on these experiences being studied rigorously uh, and interdisciplinary from an interdisciplinary perspective. I mean, he called it the science of religions. And uh, he said something to the effect of uh, if these lectures, which became the book, the varieties, uh, ever help become like a crumb-like contribution, I think he says, Mm -hmm. to the science of religions, then he would feel uh, that his that his life was well lived. It, you mm-hmm. know that 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 would be really important to him. So I think that's the part that we're picking up on, which is to say, look, James outlines this topic. He says we should study it, and we have in fact been studying it for a number of decades, and we're getting to the point now where I think we can move beyond these initial forays and exploratory studies on the topic into a robust, mature, interdisciplinary science and, and study of, of these mm-hmm. experiences. And that's mm-hmm. what's so exciting about, you know, the 21st century that we have uh, ahead of us here. And so you do a couple of things in the book. You, you, um, you survey kind of uh, the main contours of the research that has been done since James, and then you've done surveys of your own, uh, of, of actual of, of people out there to get a sense for how common different kinds of uh, spiritual experiences are. And I want to ask you about those. First, maybe we should talk a little about the relationship of the word spiritual to religious. I mean, let me let me just talk about the survey, though, for one sure. second. You said I could interrupt you. So I, I did say that before we yeah. before we started recording. I encourage people to interrupt me. Yeah. So I, I just want to yeah give a caveat there. So we did we right in the beginning of this project as we were thinking about and reading James, we thought let's you know let's run a survey and and see how these Freudian views and these Jamesian views hold up. Um, and it was meant to be footnotes. Uh, throughout the book, we'd say, hey, you know, here are some basic descriptive data bearing on this question. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to pay attention to the citations rather than the the sort of toy survey data that we include. (laughs) The the figures make it look like we're promoting uh, these particular data much more than we really are. Uh, They're just meant to show Look how easy it is to just gather some descriptive data to bear on these questions. So I just want a note of caution with overinterpreting. Uh, okay, well, there. your humility is admirable. I'm not sure it's it's what I recommend when you've got a book coming out, but I I, I really I respect the hell out of that man. Um, the uh, but uh, no, that that's that is good context. But with, with that said, are there things before we get into other? research, are there things that uh, you found that were interesting? Well, I th- I, and I won't, and again, I'll speak to the larger body of evidence from the field. I think the, the, the main thing that's interesting is that these massive polling companies like Gallup, the General Social Survey, uh, and others have for decades run these, these big surveys asking people have you ever had a spiritual or mystical experience? Mm-hmm. And they're phrased in different ways. Or another one is, have you ever had been close to a 
spiritual force that lifted you out of your sense of self? Um, have you ever, ever had a religious or mystical experience that changed the direction of your life? You know, it's phrased in different ways at different times. But I think somewhat shockingly, about 35% of populations in the US and the UK endorse these statements completely. You know, on a scale of one to five, where one is not at all and five is completely, they'll say five completely. I've hmm. absolutely had one of these experiences. And, and it was significant, uh, if not transformative, is what they're saying. It was these these experiences yeah. that people are reporting. Well, it's unclear exactly yeah. because it's just looking at prevalence. Usually I, I ask these questions, you know, I put these questions up and I say, what, it, what it would you guess? hard to do now because you know the answer. Um, but typically when I give talks, the the uh, the guesses range from five to ninety five percent. I mean, people are all over the board in terms of guessing how many people have had one of these experiences. Mm -hmm. I would have been one of the people saying closer to, you know, five, ten percent. I thought they were pretty mm -hmm. rare. And what again, I, I, I yeah. think I maybe laughed. So what is the wording? What 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 does completely mean if they say completely? What what is the standard wording on these surveys? Let's think of just one to to sort of think in terms of. Um, I mean, you don't have to do it cite it word for word, but have, have you ever been close to a spiritual force that seemed to lift you out of yourself? Okay, so that's an example where uh, a th about a third of people would probably say completely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, well, that's yeah. pretty significant. I mean, it's not just because I want to get into your kind of taxonomy of kinds of spiritual experiences. And one of them is synchronicity. I don't think it's the most significant by any means. But that I would I would expect that some version of that. In other words, for people to go, whoa, that's a weird coincidence. I wonder if that means anything. I think most people at one time or another have done that. But that's right. different from the thing you just described. Right. And of course, this speaks to the, the challenge of defining spiritual experience and so on. But you, right. you take my point that there are there are gradations and, and qualitative differences. There's definitely gradations. And we and James made the point that there are these gradations, but he's interested in the more extreme phenomena. Mm -hmm. Pulling from his background in naturalism and, and physiology, you know, if, if you want to understand an organ, look at unusual circumstances or extreme conditions mm -hmm. um i think he's doing that that there and 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 we do that as well we say look there's clearly this spectrum of intensity you know some people you know they say oh well uh you know i was looking for a parking spot and all of a sudden one appeared so yes i've had a spiritual experience um, you know or i find comfort in my belief in god for example those are things that are interesting and important to study, but they're not our topic. Mm -hmm. We're looking at stuff, intensely altered states of consciousness um, that involve some seeming perception of an unseen order and that are rather transient in time. So that's that's our focus. And it was James's as well, because you have to mark out your topic somewhere. Uh, yeah. So it's not to say that these more subtle experiences aren't important. It's just that our interest is in these more extreme examples. And the Gallup type surveys don't differentiate on that spectrum. Right. So realistically, if you're talking about really intense experiences, it's it's probably some minority of that 
35%. Now, now you use the phrase unseen order. James uh, described, he was, I forget if he was defining religious experience or religion or whatever, but, but he said it, 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 something to the effect, religion lies in the idea. He was trying to come up with a, a way of describing religion was sufficiently broad to encompass all the things that are called religion, I guess. And he said, it's the, the belief that there is an unseen order and that our supreme interests lie in harmoniously adjusting ourselves to that order, which I think is like a genius attempt, at least, to encompass a lot of stuff. Uh, but I would also say that that's a definition of religion that almost excludes some things we would call spiritual. I, I don't know. But but uh, are you anyway, my, my question is, are you uh, at the same time, James describes some things some experiences that we might not necessarily call religion because they're kind of abstract and they are more spiritual, but are you using spiritual as more or less a synonym for a modern day synonym for religion or what? In some ways. So right off the bat, we say, okay, why do we call it the varieties of spiritual experience? And it's because a bunch of scholars over the years have said, if James was alive today, he would have been undoubtedly called his book, The Varieties of Spiritual Experience, mm -hmm. because he was thinking in this broad way as well. Mm -hmm. And we actually pulled people and said, describe these experiences. And we said, what do you what do you call this? And spiritual was the most popular label. But in terms of, yeah, how do you define religion and spirituality? We, we have a whole chapter on this. It's difficult. Yeah, you don't to do. have to do it now. But... No, we don't have to do it now. But um, the religious or spiritual belief. I think uh, a supernatural type belief could could be roughly uh, described as belief in a non-physical mind of some kind. Hmm. I think hmm. that covers most cases. Hmm. It's not perfect. Uh, I don't think there is a perfect here. Uh, certainly others could do better, but but that's a sort of rough hewn distinction that I think is worthwhile. Okay. So you think of a religious or spiritual belief that doesn't involve a non-physical mind of some kind. Well, I mean, let's actually let's actually get to one of your particular kind of uh, kind of. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you call it your finding, but it, it, it's your observation that you say surprised you, and uh, I think this this gets at a lot of issues. This one thing that. There, there are experiences that are described as unitive. You know, I was at one with the universe. I was at one with God, whatever. And then there are experiences that are described as ego dissolution, right? The, the dissolution of the self, the bounds of self or something. And I think your expectation was that there that those are in some sense fundamentally the same. I mean, th this this gets a lot of issues, actually. but. Uh, there's something you were dis you were surprised by, right? About right. the relationship of those two. So, so describe, and and, and I mean, uh, first of all, by way of a footnote, I would say I'm not sure. I'm not sure having that experience uh, demands you rethink your conception of mind, but maybe it does. Anyway, let's leave that aside. And why don't you tell us what, uh, what your what you were surprised by? Yes. So. Yeah, the, well, the unseen order, I, before we skip totally by that, I mean, I, we draw on, on your work, actually, in the evolution of, of God, where you, you talk about the unseen order and how that can consist of a lot of different things, mm -hmm. um, including things like 
entropy, for example. Um, and that's not my favorite candidate, but it's possible. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, you were thinking more teleological type processes or something, maybe. E e e kind of, yeah. I mean, we don't need to get into my, <laughs> my thing. If we have time at the <laughs> well, end, we maybe we're on your on your book there because I think it was important um, the evolution of God and the, and the unseen order aspect. And so then, because it leads directly into this question of our typology that we that we created, um, which is, you know, people who said, yeah, I've had one of these spiritual type experiences, we, uh, we asked them a ton of questions, all, you know, made like 100 or so questions about the experience, what it involved. And then we did factor analysis to find these clusters. And, you know, we find that some experiences uh, are about uh, God. Some of them are about ghosts or other entities, and, and some of them are about unity. Those are like the three broad clusters. And of course, mm -hmm. we have a, a nine-factor taxonomy, which gets even more specific. Um, so there's this question, well, okay, is unity an, an unseen order, perceiving mm -hmm. unity? Mm -hmm. um, we, th we think yes. And I think and in terms of its interpretation, it could be supernaturally interpreted or not. Mm -hmm. So some people have this unity experience, you know, they're blended with everything and they're aware. So therefore, awareness must be everywhere. You know, maybe maybe an eliminativist would have that experience and say mind is nowhere. Who, kn who knows? Mm -hmm. um, but other okay, people. Okay, I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, or that it was a delusion of some kind. But. But in that unity uh, type, that did split into a, a relational component and an annihilational component. Actually, my my wife coined those terms. I have to give mm. her a bit of shout out for that. But uh, the relational is just connectedness, and the annihilational is ego loss. Mm -hmm. I always thought those were two two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. uh, turns out they're they're differentiable from one another, even though they're highly correlated with one another, and they predict slightly different outcomes. Basically, feelings of connectedness is generally felt to be positive in, mm -hmm. in valence, just feels good. And ego loss can feel good or cannot feel good, can be scary, could even be maybe related to dissociative type mm -hmm. states or, or conditions. So it's it's less related to positive outcomes. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of surprising to me. Um, there's a lot of times people emphasize this self-loss, ego loss aspect, but I don't think that that's, if you care about positive outcomes at least, that that's um, the, the primary component. I think the connectedness aspect or the relational mm -hmm. aspect probably matters more. I kind of share your intuition that they're... <laughs> They're almost two sides of the same coin. I mean, I've had the experience of like a meditation retreat where the boundaries of the self start to seem to dissolve. Uh, and it is a sense of connection where, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is my ego had not come close to completely dissolving uh, uh, even during this experience. Maybe that's why I uh, saw it as fundamentally, in some ways, an experience of of unity with the outside world, even as I felt the bounds of the self dissolving. But one one of the interesting, okay. what's that? I mean, what, I'm just curious. I mean, 
curious to hear about your experience and and whether it, it felt like it was a positive or oh it was positive and, and the feeling the exact kind of observation i had at the time was like okay there's there's a tingling in my foot uh i can hear a bird sing uh the tingling in my foot doesn't really feel like more or less a part of me than the bird singing hmm. okay so uh and this this actually gets an interesting philosophical thing involving Hinduism and Buddhism, which is that, uh, you know, a Buddhist meditative practice uh, derives from an ancient Indian context. And, and there's, you know, you can get Hindus and Buddhists arguing about who deserves the most credit if you want. But uh, Hindus are more likely to describe a, 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 an experience of oneness, I would say, a, 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 emerging of Atman and Brahman, self and the kind of universal soul or something. Uh, with Buddhists, of course, there, there are, there's the doctrine of not self and of emptiness, which is a description of, well, I, I don't want to get too deeply into this. The point is, uh, they, they, I, I have always thought that if you uh, talk to a Buddhist who's had this deep meditative experience and they're calling it not self and emptiness, and you talk to a Hindu who's calling it oneness. Um, I would I would have predicted that if you look at like a brain scan, it's the same thing going on in the brain. So we don't we don't we don't actually know yet what what the answer to that question is, do we? No, I don't think so. I think there is a distinction that's important though between theologically correct uh -huh. uh, and and what looks what what experiences look like or are felt as and described as amongst most people right you know unless you're talking to a serious buddhist scholar uh like like bhikkhu bodhi who we both know mm -hmm. you know he, he would talk about anatman and and you know the extinguishing of of the flame and and in that that very annihilational in our terms way um do most monks in that tradition who have these experiences during meditation do they have it in exactly that way yeah i'm not so sure um especially when you're not talking about monks you're talking about just uh, normal people mm -hmm. um, you know th these experiences start to look uh <laughs> very untheologically correct which of course is its own interesting uh, historical uh, topic that we could go into about mm -hmm. heretics having these experiences and authorities trying to corral them into the certain interpretations, etc. Mm -hmm. But but to the to the question of Buddhist and and Hindu interpretations, it's very interesting, and we can never fully take beliefs out of the picture and, and cultural uh, context as much as we might try as as psychologists and neuroscientists at least. These things uh, are inevitably part of our measurement uh, process. Yeah, the um, th this points to there's another thing you 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 talk about in the book that this is directly relevant to, uh, which is the debate between so-called perennialists yeah. and constructivists. So perennialists uh, think that the, the, the seeming differences across cultures in terms of experience are pretty superficial. There's something fundamentally the same going on when you have a Christian saying they felt union with God and you have a Buddhist saying the kind of thing I just described. 
Um, the uh, and then there are the, the the constructivists hold that that actually no, the experiences are are, are deeply different across cultures, right? And w- would you say James was uh, searching for a kind of perennialist? That's perennialist in spirit, right? His book. I would say he inspired a lot of perennialists who were way more extreme than than he was. Uh-huh. Um, and so he's often blamed for this very naive, simplistic perennialism. But if you actually read James, he constantly contradicts himself and provides alternate perspectives, does the same thing with emotions. He talks about sometimes this idea that there seem to be these universal emotions and other times that every emotion is as unique as a a stone in a New England farm or, you know, mm-hmm. provides some analogy like that. And I think he, he does a similar thing with these kinds of experiences. If you can pull out quotes that make him look like a complete perennialist, but then you mm-hmm. can look at other places and he says no two experience uh, is alike, uh, you know, and, and he's he's looking at experiences across traditions for for a reason. Um, and so you know, I think this is a reason why in contemporary studies we need scientists and scholars. Um, because oftentimes with scientists, at least psychologists and neuroscientists, they're going to be more perennialists mm-hmm. because they'll say, well, we all have the same nervous system uh, and the, the, the instruments, sometimes the measurement instruments, self-report scale sometimes lend themselves to uh, a narrow kind of experience that's that's being tapped. Whereas mostly scholars in the humanities, you know, their methods are reading texts. And so what they're saying is, look, actually read these accounts you know they're they're talking about very different things uh you know one one person talking about jesus and 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 god and the holy spirit and this person's talking about vishnu and and krishna entirely different mm-hmm. uh, you know cultural setting beliefs etc um so i think having a naive perennialist view is no longer tenable um, mm-hmm. And I try to get scientists all the time to read read this these works by scholars. It's kind of a tough sell. Uh, so the book is in part this attempt to say, look, philosophy matters, scholarship matters, that, that it has to be part of the discussion. Um, but it's also d- aimed at scholars. You know, I've, I've encountered scholars who, who thought that no data could bear on any of these issues in interesting ways. Uh, and so I, I had some of these kinds of people in mind uh, at, mm-hmm. at as I was writing this. Okay. So, you know, uh, one thing you, you naturally are inclined to do if you're a scholar and you're trying to tackle the whole realm of spiritual experience is come up with some categories, you know, uh, in the spirit, maybe of what we just said in a certain sense. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, they're not all the same and not all the, all these things we're calling spiritual are not the same. Um, and, and so, uh, you, you do some of that, I'm going to list the title uh, titles of what, like five or six consecutive chapters, and, and then ask you to say a little something about each of these. Okay, so uh, one is numinous experiences, one is revelatory experiences, one is synchronicity experiences, one is mystical experiences, colon, unity and ego dissolution. We alluded to that. Uh, aesthetic experiences, awe, and that is colon, awe and the sublime. Um, and paranormal experiences, uh, which includes like ghosts and angels and so on. So uh, 
Start with Numinous. Uh, what is, I mean, there after the colon, I think there's something about, yeah, encountering the, the encountering divinity. So talk, talk about that a little. And then I'll, I'll, I'll preface it with doing the thing you said not to do, which is uh, under humility. No humility. No, 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 no. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, we say the taxonomy fails in the second to last chapter, but, but so the numinous experience, so this is presence of divinity. So this, this notion of all pervading mind, what Huxley called mind at large. So this, sense in that the, there's mind that somehow infused into the material existence or somehow beyond it, but relating to it in an important way. So this is probably, yeah, this is an experience of God. This is probably what James talked about most in, in the varieties, but this, this feeling of diffuse presence of non-physical mind. Okay. So, uh, I mean, most people who have the experience would would uh, describe it in more specific and concrete terms, as as we've just suggested. They'd have a cultural context they'd apply to it. Uh, so th- this can include. Emic, uh, go ahead. There's the emic etic distinction. You know, it's talk it, about it, that a little. And anthrop- anthropologists talk about the emic perspective, which is, you know, from within the group. And so a, a Christian would say that was Christ you know, uh, or, you know, different traditions would say they'd use the terms that they're used to using, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the etic is kind of the more academic outsider perspective. And they and that's more vague terminology, like the one the, the terminology I use, like this diffuse non-physical mind. Right. Uh, but yeah, okay. God experience, basically. OK. Uh, and I wonder. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, you know, I uh, how broad how broad this category of experience is. Like uh, when I was, you know, I was raised Baptist, and when I was uh, about eight or nine, I made. You know, they have uh, at the end of each service, they have an invitation. Uh, they usually sing one of a couple of hymns, uh, like "Just as I Am" or "Jesus is Tenderly Calling" or something. And 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 there's an explicit appeal. If you watch a Billy Graham thing, this is the culmination. He's He's calling people to come up to the altar. That means they're surrendering their lives to Christ and they are going to be baptized. And in the Baptist tradition, you know, you don't do that like at birth, like in Catholics. It's important that people make the decision to be baptized. And my parents weren't there. Uh, And I later heard that they were a little troubled that I had made the decision (laughs) this early. But uh, I I responded to the call and I just I remember. it was the middle of a so-called revival. And so they're kind of, they've been priming you for this. But anyway, the, uh, I just, I, it's, I, it's hard to describe, but there was definitely a feeling inside of me, like this is the right thing to do. It was an external, uh, you know, I, I was just wondering, uh, this is going nowhere, except I was wondering, would that qualify as a sense of, I wasn't that strong as, I mean, there must've been a sense of divine presence that was doing the calling, but I don't know. Is it, does, does, does that is that something you haven't heard much about in your in all of your that specific experience? It's an interesting one. It's an interesting one. Yeah, I'm it curious. It felt like kind of possession. I would. I mean, it was like there was something out there moving me. This is the right thing to do. It felt like that. Well, that part is the most interesting part. I would say that there's something moving you. How, how would 
how was that message received or, or were you were you perceiving something inwardly I mean, it was definitely an inward i can still feel it in my chest huh i mean okay. i i think i remember what it felt like wow yeah and so and it was certainly an an but, other but uh, it was field. coming from the outside i i mean and this is not to get too wrapped up in me but this is another question i have for you it's like i sometimes did describe like the nature of my conscience to people who weren't raised religiously and they can't relate to it. And it's this, it's, you know, because I'm no longer conventionally religious. I'm no longer have, you know, Christian beliefs, uh, or confident theistic beliefs, but, uh, the form that my own conscience takes is still a sense of being judged from the outside. Does that seem crazy? No, no, okay. I don't think so. Good. Ooh, that's a relief. <laughs> but but the the experience you describe in particular, you know, Tanya Lerman's work would probably speak right. to it quite well, which is this idea of being prepped, being primed in all kinds of different ways. And then when you have any emotional excitement or ambiguous outside or, or inner um, stimuli, you're much more likely to attribute it to the thing that you've been primed to, to mm -hmm. experience. Um, that model, uh, I think, works not as well to explain spontaneous experiences that don't have this obvious priming process. Like but yours. I, well, right, exactly. But the one you just described, it's, if it's after this whole revival where you've been primed and set up for this kind of feeling, and then in this emotional excitement, you know, it's this kind of ambiguous sensations and, and arousal maybe those expectations will will pierce through into your actual mm -hmm. sensorium and your and your your actual perception and you just have the experience mm -hmm. so uh back to the numinous i mean the kind of are there particularly mystical versions of that i mean you hear about people like is it saint john of the cross uh the the you, you hear a number of figures in christian history who had these intense well, probably Joan of Arc, I guess, but had these intense experiences of kind of, I don't know, visitation or what. But uh, I guess you had to think about, well, how broad a range of experiences qualifies as numinous. Well, the data did that a bit, but but yeah, I mean, in, in this case, it was this diffuse sense of mind, but these, these categories are not... Uh, mutually exclusive so you can have a deep feeling of unity and a deep feeling of divine presence or this mm -hmm. non-physical mind in all things so that would just be an instance of both of these categories at once and those certainly occur now maybe i should have actually saved joan of arc for your next chapter now that i'm looking at <laughs> so revelatory right. experiences colon voices visions and epiphanies you know, there's yeah. obviously going to be some possible overlap here among uh, categories. But oh, there's much, much overlap. Right. But yeah, so that that three, those three of yeah, call it just for the sake of being able to remember God type experiences, ghost type, and unity type, and then there's subcategories. So we're all in these subcategories of of uh, God type experiences, r really. Um, but yeah, revelatory experiences is are these moments where you receive information uh, from beyond the sense of self in an inward way. And so 
yeah, voices, visions, epiphanies that feel like they are delivered to your mind whole cloth and don't come from your normal process of cognition. Uh-huh. So hearing um, voice. What's that? So hearing voices, you know, it's a, a classic example. And 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 here, you know, uh the question of mental illness enters the picture, right? Was uh, you know, are are you um are you schizophrenic or are you are you not? I guess is the question if you're hearing voices and 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 is and of course there are people, there there are certainly academics who would say uh the answer is yes. I mean, hearing voices, they're not there. Uh, and that's it. Uh, on the other hand, there's such a fine line between experiencing a thought and hearing a voice. You know what I mean? It's like right. But anyway, go ahead. Well, <laughs> or did I just label myself as, as crazy? No, anyway, go ahead. Oh, no. Um, well, really, though, it's not just this category, every category, the, the issue of psychopathology yeah. is important to consider in each and every category um, because I'm and positive outcomes and prevalence, you know, in each of these categories. And it gets back to your thought on, on uh, Freud and Jung and James, where Freud, you know, he, when he heard about these experiences, he would have looked at them and said, this is, these are all species of psychopathology, mm -hmm. you know, never having had one of these experiences and just thinking they're weird and then not collecting any data whatsoever. Jung mm -hmm. was sort of the other extreme, uh, a bit more nuanced, but tended to see these types of experiences as uh, as wholly positive uh, and and speaking to a kind of you know collective conscious. And and James was much much more nuanced. Uh, he really did bend over backwards to acknowledge that not all these experiences are positive, uh, as do we in the book. Um, and that some of them are indeed related to, to psychopathology. And I think you're right. Revelatory experience is a good category to, to drill down on this. Because, yeah, if someone starts hearing voices, um, they should seek out a mental health professional. Um, I mean, that's, that's the advice. Mm -hmm. um, however, a lot of people end up hearing a voice here and there uh, throughout throughout their lives. It's actually quite normative. Uh, and many people, uh, some of them are just random voices, you know, um, but some of them, uh, you know, you, you, you hear something quite meaningful and it ends up being a, a, a positive experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, uh, I mean, on a meditation retreat, I've had a different kind of experience than the one I described where oh, it's m more psychedelic. Uh, and and really results from a different kind of meditation in a certain sense than the mm -hmm. first one. But uh, where I, I kind of heard a voice, and I would think it was uh, it was actually one part of my my brain talking to another part, or talking, or just one part of my brain expressing itself, and I was hearing it as a voice. Uh, I guess if I did that twenty four seven, it might might be time to call nine eleven. But uh, it, uh, you know, it's. Was it a meaningful message or was it just sort of neutral gibberish? There were two different ones. Uh, neither was gibberish. Hmm. Uh, one I described in my, my book on Buddhism, why Buddhism is true. Uh, and it was actually, 
I don't want to. Uh, uh, never mind. This is your book. Uh, so it, it was interesting. <laughs> I'm but, super curious, but well, okay. we can talk. We can talk afterwards. Uh, but okay. um, the uh, we've we've got plenty of uh, uh, ground to cover. So uh, the next uh, next one is. And then, of course, the third thing in that sequence under revelatory voices, visions, and epiphanies. Epiphanies, I, I mean, y your thing that your experience was kind of a, was that an epiphany where you felt the power of love? I wouldn't say so. It wasn't a it wasn't information wasn't conveyed uh -huh. uh, directly in like a representational form. It wasn't. It was now I get it. Colon, uh, <laughs> and and there's something after the colon. Right. Right. Um, exactly. And there's this interpretive component, like you said, oh, this is my brain, different parts of my brain talking to one another. Some people choose that interpretation. Some people think that, that was, that was God, uh, that, that spoke to me. Interestingly, there's sometimes, well, often a, an assumption, if this was my brain speaking to me, that must be a symptom of mental illness. Uh, mm -hmm. whereas if it's God, then that's a good thing. Um, I think it's very important to break that necessary connection, even if it's part of your brain talking to another part of your brain. Uh, the outcome of that experience can be quite positive and meaningful, and therefore it doesn't make sense to think of it as a sign or symptom of mental illness in any way. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, you have to look for the outcome. And, and so yeah. if the outcome is good, it's inappropriate to think of it in this pathologizing way, which okay. many people still do. Right. End. Uh, and I mean, uh, you know, the point of James's quote that I read earlier is let's don't be so judgmental. Uh, you know, James was writing after Darwin and, and uh, I, I, I guess he, he recognized that, you know, the brains we have are products of natural selection, a particular evolutionary path. They're designed to take care of an organism. There's no reason to assume that the form of consciousness that leads to on a day to day basis is the most valid or truest uh, way of apprehending the universe, and and you know I I I might say that with respect to your experience that uh, you know li uh, not that you said yours was a feeling of boundless love I guess but uh, it was a feeling of love and I would say you know a feeling of boundless love is probably uh, you know pure true utterly boundless love. that's probably no way for an animal to go about getting its genes in a race I mean unless you, you know what I mean? I mean, the point is, I, I think that that, that was uh, kind of the importance of James's insight. In fact, he uses the term adaptive or something, I think, in that phrase, that they may have their realms of uh, of being adaptive and uh, these different states. Uh, so anyway. Um, and he makes a big deal about the kinds of things that we we can't answer, the kinds of questions we can't answer and takes those issues off the table largely till the mm -hmm. very end and says, let's look at what we can actually study scientifically causes correlates and mm -hmm. consequences basically. Um, but, but yeah, in terms of, you know, whether it's true or not in the supernatural sense, basically says we can't know that scientifically at least. Yeah. Yeah. So synchronicity experiences. Now I have asked uh, a couple of times, asked classes of students, uh, have any of you ever had the experience of like, maybe you're under pressure to make a decision. Should you break up or not? Should you, 
take this class or not. There's just, you know, for some reason, a little tension. A song comes on the radio or something, right as you're thinking about this, or, or in some other room, there's some kind of coincidence, and it really gets your attention. You're like, whoa, is this guidance? Is this, and, and, and an extremely high percentage in my experience of people have had those experiences, large majority. Uh, now, does that qualify as a synchronicity experience, or does there need to be more enduring conviction following from it, or what? I think we specify that it should be an intensely altered state. So okay. again, we're trying to look at these more extreme instances. So it it shouldn't be a kind of a casual, like, oh, I was just thinking of that word and now I'm seeing it on a billboard. You know, it, it would be more of these sort of momentous life moments. You know, I'm trying to decide whether to be a physician or a scientist and all of a sudden, uh, you know, five tractor trailer trucks go by in a row that all have like physicians on 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 the side of them <laughs> advertising them. And all of them say, so, become a doctor on the side. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But then there's a response that is uh, that is in, in, intensely altered in some way in which, you know, that the 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 meaning feels like it's directly for you and, and extremely salient. And it feels like a message from somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, uh, and and uh, what would you make of the fact that uh, drugs can enhance this predictably, right? I mean, I would think marijuana, psychedelics, all have the tendency to make you more likely to see coincidences as meaningful, right? Right. And and some some mental disorders as well, um, mm -hmm. yeah. And and you know there are states. So we were thinking of the trigger being the coincidence, but there are states of mind in which things that don't even seem like a coincidence right. will be felt to be a coincidence. Um, so it goes it goes that way. As well, well, in a way, I mean that's. Oh, you mean uh, when you say felt to be a coincidence, you mean felt to be meaningful or felt to be not meaningful? Felt to be meaningful. Yeah, sorry, meant to be very yeah. meaningful. Things that most people would not say are unlikely seem like right. unlikely coincidences. Well, I, I see, that's what or, I think. Or even not a coincidence uh, that other people may not see as a coincidence. I mean, you could say, you know, if, if you're in one of these states in which everything is being felt, you know, your signal to noise detector is fully on everything's mm -hmm. signal, right? right? And you look at your desk and there's a, a letter there and it's from Ohio and you feel strongly that that <clears throat> is saying something right. <clears throat> important, but everyone else in the room would say, what do you mean? That's not even a coincidence. Uh, so, so that's, that would and, be and think, and, and what they're thinking partly is that's not even that unlikely, right? That too. Well, that's what yeah. I mean is that, is that drugs, I think, you know, marijuana and psychedelics uh, change your, can change your threshold for thinking of something as a really unlikely and therefore probably meaningful, but really unlikely, right? Like you'd have a straight person in the room, totally stoned person in the room, stoned person is going, what are the chances? And uh, the straight person is going, oh, about one in two, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what, right. what are you talking about? Uh, so that's right. just an interesting fact that you can change the brain chemistry and change that threshold. And of course, the path you're describing, like, more and more things seem meaningful at one end of that is a certain kind of mental illness, right? Where suddenly the dog is talking to you, right? 
and and uh, so. But anyway. what's interesting, even here, I don't think that um, a psychopathological framing is the foundation. I mean, this is a this is a cognitive shift in uh, your signal to noise detection of of meaning. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it can go in slightly positive directions. Like there's paranoia, the belief everyone's out to get you. There's also pronoia. The belief that everything is conspiring in your benefit, uh, and you know, if you ha- mm. if you have a little bit of that, it, it may not end up causing suffering in yourself or others, or cause dysfunction. And mm-hmm. so, you really can't call it a mental illness. You can you can point to epistemic problems with the inferences the person's making, but but it but in terms of calling it a mental illness, I don't think it would it would uh, warrant that label. Mm-hmm. So then you've got the uh, the chapter mystical experiences, unity and ego dissolution. We talked about that, but what else do you want to say? That's probably the most studied in terms of scientifically. A lot of the psychedelic research is going in that direction. I think these these experiences occur during mindfulness as well, lower intensity. It's just a, supernatural attributions can occur uh, or not in all of these. But I think it's easiest to talk in terms of unity type experiences in a non-supernatural way. And so I think that's probably why they've been taken up uh, more so. Mm-hmm. And of course, the word mystical is applied to a lot of things. Uh, this is one this is one way of this is one way of defining a mystical experience. I was kind of thinking I was kind of thinking I remembered that in, in uh, James's book, he describes a mystical experience as noetic but ineffable. That is imparting knowledge, but you can't uh, articulate the knowledge. You're sure, you know, um, but I'm, uh, I could be wrong. Um, no, no, that's right. And, and it's paradoxical. Uh, it's a, a feeling of, of knowing or knowledge being conveyed and yet not being able to articulate verbally anything about the experience. And so at other places, James talks about the noetic quality as this feeling of reality, like you're, you're mm-hmm. tapping into the, the real reality uh, and the everyday reality is somehow not as real. Right. So that's a different way of thinking of noetic quality. But, but yeah, in these more mystical type unity experiences, there's not necessarily any kind of revelation that occurs. Uh, it's just this deep feeling of, of connection. But, but there does tend to be a feeling at that moment that this is true, right? Like, right. and maybe realer than your ordinary, truer than your ordinary way of looking at the world. I think that's right. Yeah. And which was why I think it, it technically still counts under that unseen reality aspect. It, there's You mean the unseen order or the unseen order? Yeah. It feels like you're tapping into some kind of deeper aspect yeah. of reality. And again, I mean, one would imagine that natural selection would tend to take consciousness, whatever consciousness is, and shape it into this very self-centered thing, this ego. And that's a, a byproduct of, of an evolutionary process. It's not necessarily the truest view of the universe, right? So it could make sense that you have one of these experiences and, and think of it as true. So aesthetic experiences, awe and the sublime. Uh, yeah, so it's psychologists talk in terms of awe. It's this it's a positive ish, but also can be negative emotion. It's a complex emotion. Um, you know, Dacker Keltner and Jonathan Haidt really kicked off this whole sub area of studying awe. Um, but what psychologists call awe, philosophers 
call the sublime. There's a lot of work on the sublime. And we kind of criticized James for not bringing in any of that work. He would have been, of course, aware of, of uh, philosophical work on the sublime. He doesn't really bring it in uh, to his discussion, mm. maybe mostly because he's trying to do psychology more so than uh, a review of, of philosophy. Um, we don't bring all that much scholarship or philosophy in either. Uh, but yeah, uh, Kant, Hegel, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche all, all talked about the sublime and having this uh, ego transcending component and this the feeling of being in the presence of something grand and um, yeah. uh, kind of a, a sacredness uh, or importance and uh, feeling of possibility. I mean, they're very interesting subjective qualities that are... Uh, listed there yeah and i think um i would imagine that yeah, first of all some people are more aesthetically sensitive than others i'm not so aesthetically sensitive my wife is uh huh. and uh but some people are more inclined than others to almost interpret those as religious i i, I remember uh i was talking to a professor at princeton theological seminary at that time and that we just ran into each other every once in a while uh, and and he was describing an experience he had at the opera, and he I, I don't know if he started crying or what, but but for him this was clearly it was like a religious experience, yeah. And and, and not everyone would would describe a profound aesthetic experience that way. That, again, that maybe that's an example of cultural having a cultural framework for interpreting this uh, a feeling, but. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned a lot of people have synchronicity experiences. I think this category is the one that everyone can kind of uh, empathize their way into, uh, yeah. exert some cognitive empathy and, under and understand what people are feeling, but but also just uh, emotional empathy. I, th I mean, basically what I'm trying to say, most people have had an intense experience of awe yeah. at something, um, yeah. you know, sweeping scenery. You know, that could be good, you know, art, music um, or ideas. I mean, you know, sometimes you 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 truly understand an idea that seems to explain a lot uh, and you're you're left in this um, this feeling of, of deep awe. And, right. And Absolutely. Now, that, yeah. that I have. I mean, I have aesthetic. I have aesthetic experiences, too. I don't want to. Uh, right, right. But, 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 but intellectual unity, like an idea that that unites previously diverse phenomena or something, uh, that can be a profound experience. Right, and and maybe there you're seeing into uh, this deeper aspect of reality, or it feels as if yeah. you are. Now, paranormal experiences, ghosts, angels. Uh, so yeah, so this is something. I mean the benefit of running a, a little survey i don't want to make too much of that again but but it, i i didn't we know <laughs> didn't imagine <laughs> well it's an important point i think but but we didn't imagine so many people would talk about ghosts i mean that that was that was a real surprise um when i think of spiritual mystical type experiences i'm you know what, what really i had in mind was these unity experiences and maybe these numinous god experiences but a lot of people uh, talked about ghost experiences. Um, we kind of class like this sort of psychic and paranormal stuff in general in this this broad category. Um, I think the the most interesting part of this is 
seeing an apparition of a recently departed loved one, mm-hmm. which is which is shockingly common. Mm. Uh, my my wife's a psychiatrist. She even had this in a on a test in in medical school. Was someone describes a recently bereaved man describes seeing a ghost of um, of his uh, recently departed wife. You know, do you refer to inpatient psychiatry, outpatient psychiatry, or just say that that's normal? And mm. uh, basically, the the gist of it is no, that's that's normal. It's actually by some estimates, it seems really high, but but around 50% of recently bereaved spouses will see a visage, uh, you mm. know, a, a, an image of of their recently deceased spouse, which which I find very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, how how common that is, and uh, th- these experiences should be part of all of all of this uh, this research as well, because I think they're they're fascinating. Yeah. Um, you ever so, have a ghost? You have a ghost story, <laughs> or I someone you know and trust who has? I one? don't have a ghost story. Uh, now, uh, <laughs> even William James felt weird about the ghost stuff. You yeah. know, he provides a few examples, and he says, you know to the audience like this may seem strange to you but i'm going to tell you another story and this is from someone i really trust uh yeah. you know to really be aware that this is a, a well, strange didn't, didn't he fool around with seances or something or am i oh yeah yeah so his his wife alice and brother uh henry uh, were both really interested in spiritualist phenomena mm-hmm. so was james really sincerely so um he called it his search for uh his white crow so he said you know disprove a universal proposition you don't need to find boundless evidence to support it you just need to find one counterexample. so to disprove all crows are black just find Mm -hmm. one white crow Mm -hmm. so he thought if he could find one instance of psychic or paranormal phenomena that could be replicable that would be of important you know historic importance it's just that every instance he looked into he kind of ended up in this debunker role of charlatans or or sort of wishful thinking yeah so we said we'd talk about psychedelics and i guess well maybe drugs generally because uh you know james experimented with nitrous oxide as we said and know what he he got a unitive uh thing out of that is that that's that's how i read it yeah Mm -hmm. Seemed all of the opposites of reality were melted into uh, a unity. He said it was the strongest emotion of his life. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we can take that quote. You know, if we take it seriously, it's a big deal. He said uh, he said I, he, could, he could only understand Hegel. <laughs> in that state, which is interesting. Well, Actually, he and his friends used to rent out a theater, and they would take turns taking nitrous oxide and give monologues to the rest of the group that made, the that made no sense to the rest of the group right or is that right i think i think so yeah mm-hmm. i mean a lot of it just is sort of paradoxical statements uh-huh um so uh but but let's talk about um psychedelics uh which i guess nitrous oxide is not classified as psychedelic is it, it, no. it it's it's fundamentally a closer to being well it's almost sui generis it doesn't sound that much like an like an opiate although it's used for anesthetic purposes. Right. Um, 
but it's it's different. It's different. Yeah. Usually when we when we the word psychedelic now generally is being used to refer to serotonergic psychedelics, mm-hmm. uh, psilocybin, LSD, DMT. But even there, you get fundamental differences. I mean, on the one yeah. hand, I, I mean, I, I've heard people describe, you know, well, I think you get into this. The the the, uh, the we've talked about the difference between unitive and well, uh, let me let me just ask it. Just talk about the difference between on the one hand DMT and on the other hand things like LSD and mushrooms. Because I've heard people who have taken DMT. Uh, and I guess ayahuasca is uh, in that category, right? Because it has, is DMT derived from ayahuasca or in ayahuasca or? In ayahuasca. Okay. So you, from both, from people who've taken DMT and ayahuasca, you hear these stories of visitation. A being right. came and talked to me. Yeah. You don't get that very much from mushrooms and psychedelics. That's right. Uh, so, or what? So why don't you do a little compare and contrast here? What do, what do you what do you make of that? Yeah, well, Roland Griffiths has a paper on this comparing uh, psilocybin, LSD, DMT, and ayahuasca um, in in terms of these entity encounters and and other characteristics. And just like you say, uh, with with DMT and ayahuasca, you get more of these entity type encounters, which mm-hmm. In our taxonomy, we, we would class more under a paranormal type experience. Uh, although most people attribute a lot of uh, beneficence and kindness and uh, and kind of sacredness to these entities, mm-hmm. uh, and so it's a it's a fuzzy. All of them are fuzzy categories, but this one especially so. Where whereas right, psilocybin. And LSD, you get a bit more of the mystical type category of these feelings of of, of unity and, and mm-hmm. connectedness. Um, but it's an it's an important part of the research on psychedelics that we're broadening out and capturing more of these interesting experiences. We're not just looking at mystical type experiences; we're capturing all kinds of of inner uh, mm-hmm. experiences. Yeah. Now. Uh... The drugs that have been used effectively to help reconcile themselves to to help people reconcile themselves to impending death, like cancer patients and so on, and I think some of this work has been done at Johns Hopkins, right? right. Uh, those are um, those tend to be uh, conventional psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin, right? Just psilocybin. Yeah, we focus mostly on psilocybin, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's most of the research that's been done. Very similar. Um, maybe LSD has a slightly more dopaminergic uh, quality, although a lot of the research is showing that subjectively they're they're very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but LSD lasts substantially longer. Uh, so psilocybin has the virtue of lasting about five or six hours. And so it's easier on people, participants to come in, you know, have the experience and then still have time to, to go mm-hmm. home process. And these are guided experiences. They may involve music, various other things, but it's not like it's not like these effects, uh, you know, are are uh, guaranteed if you just take the drug. No, it's, uh, no. Um, there are you know that doesn't help everyone. Uh, mm-hmm. Some people have negative experiences that are difficult, challenging, and end up benefiting. 
some people have difficult negative experiences and they uh, don't benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some people um, have, uh, you know, persisting negative effects, although in the clinical setting so far, that's been uh, a pretty tiny minority. But it's important, I think, you know, there's so much hype about psychedelics. I think it's important to emphasize that there are real risks and it doesn't benefit everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, But the end of life uh, terminal diagnosis application, I think, is is very compelling because there aren't many tools available uh, there in our Mm -hmm. society. You know, there's there's antidepressants, there's opioids, you know, there's there's other tools that are there. Um, and it's and it's good to make available those tools for those who can benefit. But you know this this existential aspect uh, of of confronting the reality of the situation um, and being able to connect with loved ones in a in a sincere and open way. It looks like as of now from these trials, psychedelics could really play a role there, uh, which which is something new. It would be something new in our society, in the way that we face uh, end of life. Way what, we are, face- what are some of the other kinds of benefits people get from psychedelics? This, this deep feeling of meaning feels very important. I think it's really interesting to kind of characterize exactly what people mean by that. Some of my new work is in that direction. Um, the other benefits are maybe more straightforward, boosts in positive in mood, uh, better attitudes about oneself and the world, um, altruistic uh, impulses, and you know overall well-being, mm-hmm. you know life satisfaction, things like that. Uh, and then it appears it could could be potentially effective in various disorders like mood and substance use disorders. Uh, mm-hmm. So depression, uh, anxiety. Yeah, I know people who say uh, psilocybin has helped with anxiety. And and there is not infrequently a unitive or ego-dissolving effect. Am I right? I think in Michael Pollan's book, his big ego dissolution experience is on psilocybin, right? He wrote this book, uh, How to Change, best-selling book, How to Change Your Mind, which right. was a, which helped, uh, you know, kind of a, is, is a milestone in the legitimation, I guess, of psychedelics. It, this was a mainstream book that was a big bestseller. But, but I, I think psilocybin for him was ego death. Unless I, I think that's the one where he says his ego became a bunch of post-it notes or something <laughs> maybe i'm getting <laughs> the stories mixed I up i don't i don't remember which story goes which i don't yeah, remember yeah. exactly yeah i mean that book was really important to counter these decades of drug war propaganda mm-hmm. and the airmongering you know especially among uh i think older people who all know michael michael pollan's work really well mm-hmm. and trust him but he also is just very, very clear, a good writer and, and look at uh, and in terms of the way he looks at the, the history and describes it in this fair way. Mm-hmm. He might not have emphasized the risks of psychedelics and the fact that they don't work, uh, you know, for everyone. Everyone doesn't have this amazing positive transformation, which the the Netflix uh, documentary mm-hmm. on his book it, it conveys that sense. Um I mean, those are some some quibbles, but but overall, I think he 
he helped provide a new social narrative for psychedelics that's that wasn't this um you know drugs are bad and and psychedelics are the worst drugs of all mm-hmm. which which is kind of what you got in you know dare classes and things like that yeah and i think he has his disclaimer line his to be sure line about you know these things can work out badly but uh, you're does. right it's a, it's a it's overall a i mean he has some negative experiences i think now i think uh there's one uh, a drug he took that's interesting because it seems so kind of anomalous. It's the version, I think it's a version of DMT that... Yeah, 5-MeO. Yeah, 5-MeO. So uh, it's the one that in organic, when it's organic, it comes from a toad or, or something, right? right. And, and uh, but can but be synthesized. Uh, and, and that is said to, uh, when it works, I guess, as a lot of people hope, to lead to ego death or lead to ego dissolution. And, and I gather not so much to the kind of thing that other versions of DMT lead to, which is like visitation by some seeming being that has an important message for you. It's a fascinating distinction. And, and that's been collected anecdotes about these two substances make that clear. I don't know that there's been a systematic investigation yet would love to do that. I know Imperial College London is looking at 5-MeO DMT. I, I would really like to run a study at mm-hmm. Hopkins. Um, yeah, because it's short acting. So so there's 5-MeO DMT and call it NNDMT. Yeah. One of them associated with these entity encounters, one with this sort of unitive consciousness. And and actually they're they're structurally quite similar in terms of their their molecules and they mm-hmm. both last you know, 20 minutes or so. So they're, they're much more manageable. Um, yeah, it, you know, there's so much research that needs to be done in the field of psychedelics uh, on the clinical side, but also just the purely scientific psychological side as well. Um, right. And, you know, it all, for my money, come, <laughs> brings back that quote from James, like, you know, putting a substance in your brain can make you can take you further away from reality for sure and in a very pathological and dysfunctional way but there's no reason to believe that given the fact that our brains weren't really constructed fundamentally to perceive reality wholly and truly and in fact in some ways uh designed by natural selection to to give us perceptual and cognitive biases and to in a certain sense mislead us um no reason to believe that that in some cases you're not getting closer to what could be called a true a true view of the world um he was very open about those possibilities i mean he ended up having this pragmatic assessment you know and he's of course known as one of the co-founders of philosophy of pragmatism yeah and his view was look if it if it result if an if a given experience results in benefits to yourself and others and if it fits with your other beliefs and knowledge uh, and and if you look at it in the in the long run, um, then you have some ability to not only say that that experience was useful, but also that it could be true, mm-hmm. which is a controversial uh, sort of direction to take. Of course, you know Bertrand Russell and and his crew thought that that was ridiculous, but um, yeah, I mean yeah. that's his that's his pragmatic assessment and. And by the way, you know, he was close colleagues with uh, Adolf Meyer, who was the founder of psychiatry, 
uh, in the U.S. who was at Johns Hopkins, and you know, so so James's assessment of these of experiences, this pragmatic view, found its way into the foundation of of contemporary psychiatry, which is that's a story that hasn't really been told. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, and, and speaking of Johns Hopkins, so you're at the medical school, right? That's where all this work is being done. Johns Hopkins right. Yeah. yeah. Psychi- psychiatry and behavioral sciences is the, the department. Okay. So, so it's in a larger unit too, the behavioral pharmacology research unit, which is well known for studying all kinds of drugs in a, a fairly ecologically valid way. Uh, and so that's kind of the, the history of it. You know, all you know, opioids, amphetamines, alcohol, cannabis, mm-hmm. And then psychedelics are, you know, our center is now situated in this broader unit. So we're looking okay. at all substances. Okay. Is there much cannabis research? It's weird. That's yeah. the most widely used of all of these, but you don't, you don't hear that much about the science of it. Oh, there's, yeah, you should have someone on uh, from the cannabis group. Yeah, at, at Johns Hopkins? Sure. Yeah. Ah, sign me up. Yeah. Yeah. I can't really speak to it to be honest, what, where, where the field is currently, um, I know they're testing a lot of, you know, uh, myths or, or, Mm -hmm. or ideas that are, are out there, you know, how detrimental is it? Does it, you know, can it actually trigger psychosis at at some doses? Uh, are there entourage effects with, with other active components? Um, you, you know, mean aside from THC? Can there be benefits? Else? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and can there be benefits? Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, there's a whole whole science of of cannabis that's worth looking into. Don't see a huge amount of cannabis triggering spiritual experience, but there's mm-hmm. there's some of that. Um, psychedelics well, are in a totally different category, though, uh, in terms of a trigger. It's psychedelics are pretty reliably having the the effects of people mm. saying yeah that 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 was a spiritual experience but I, but I would think cannabis for a lot of people deepens aesthetic experience which is on your scale right right yeah um, absolutely so uh anything else you want to say about the book it's been a great conversation um yeah but... I appreciate it. great question let's see um you know I I would well there's the reveal at the end of of James's professional and personal conclusions, which I think is is interesting. Um, and do you want to go ahead and do do the plot spoiler, or should I spoil it? I mean, it's I don't, totally it's your call. You, you and you and your marketing consultant. <laughs> well, my my marketing consultant is just me wanting to uh, have have people take a grain of salt with uh, uh, any of the the data and you know the typology. Another spoiler alert is we say the typology ends up not working and we need to do better in the in the field going mm-hmm. forward. Um, but yeah, I'll spoil it. Uh, the The professional conclusion is that James says he he doubles down on this methodological agnosticism that he carries on throughout the book. He says, um, we we're setting these philosophical and theological questions aside, and actually, we're always going to have to do that as scientists. Uh, these are largely unfalsifiable claims, and none of the evidence from any of these experiences, of which he's listed hundreds, counts as evidence for any supernatural reality or lack thereof. 
So that's the professional conclusion. But then, which I think is a really surprising moment that a lot of people miss in the varieties itself, James's varieties, is he then offers his personal conclusion, which is he says, um, I'm going to take the leap of faith. And apparently that's James's um, phrase. It's not Kierkegaard. That's what mm -hmm. Rebecca Goldstein argues, at least. So he, he says, you know, um, there's such a thing as an overbelief. And that's when you don't have good evidence one way or another uh, that you can you can form a belief on the basis of its benefits, essentially. Yeah. Uh, that his belief in uh, other realms of consciousness, of non-physical mind, makes him uh, more sane and happy and true. And so therefore, for him, that's enough. Mm -hmm. uh, I find that highly admirable, uh, that the fact that he doubles down on the methodological agnosticism, yet also says uh, what he himself uh, has has chosen to do. Yeah. Yeah, he wrote uh, either a long essay or a short book called, I think, The Will to Believe, which he's kind of, he's, he's making an argument that it's ultimately in the spirit of his philosophy of pragmatism. Uh, right. And I forget what he's trying to talk himself into believing, whether it's a theistic belief or belief in free will. He, he, he did both of those at times, I think. But, um, but anyway, that's a fascinating little intellectual exercise. I don't recall it quite persuading me, but, uh, <laughs> but he's well, he such a great writer and, and, and thinker. Exactly. And he does, he does that twice in his life. He, he, he chooses to believe in free will as an adolescent, uh -huh. really, or a young adult who's depressed. And so my first act of free will will be to believe in free will. And he felt like that helped him. Yeah. And then later in his life, does the same thing, this voluntarism, and, and says, well, I choose to believe on the basis of, of the benefits. Yeah. Um, well, free will is, a, I think, is a more, in a way, a, a better argument than theism in a certain, in just in the sense that uh, belief in the doctrine has an effect on your behavior, and the doctrine is about your behavior. Doctrine is about human behavior, and believing in free will is, you could argue, is an act that you know it's a doctrine that becomes true if you believe in it <laughs> because then you behave like a person who has free i don't know uh, but anyway uh he he would have applied the pragmatism to to both i think uh theism and theistic belief and belief in free i think will. so um right i so, like his professional conclusion i mean i i think staying in that space of unknowing is a kind of continuing source of awe and wonder mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah but anyway yeah. yeah this was great thank you so much for uh for actually well reading. congratulations it's a, it's a very ambitious project you did it and now uh now it's out and and um i think you'll um you've done a great job presenting it and uh so enjoy the uh enjoy the process and and uh and maybe we'll check in down the road thanks so much yeah talk to you soon okay